Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 28. We're on the final chapter, of course. We've been on the journey with Paul from Caesarea all the way to his, the tempest that he was met with and the battering of the ship and landing on Malta. It's been quite traumatic. And we've seen a lot in this last chapter and a half, really, that God used to get the great apostle to Rome, his final destination. This is where he knew since chapter 19 and verse 21, way back when he was in Ephesus, he knew, he said back then that he was going to, uh, he knew in his spirit, I don't believe that's a reference to the Holy Spirit there, I believe it's in his own spirit, in his own sense of things and God's calling in his life that he must go to Rome and that ends up being Confirmed, so whether or not that's an upper or lower case is a moot point because Christ tells him himself and also the angel of God tells him on the ship itself. So he he knows this is his destination and now we find him here. And last time, two weeks ago, we talked, we looked at the uh, first part of this chapter as we looked at verse uh, 1 through 16 and uh, we looked after that, uh, or two weeks rather, the first half of that, and then 11 through 16, two weeks ago. And now we pick up this morning and finish, Lord willing, this book, this wonderful historical book of the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ in this week and next. And then I look forward to entering into John's gospel with you, Lord willing, in a few weeks. Looking forward to that with great anticipation to see what God will do. So let's read together. Uh, we're going to take this first part verse 17 through 22 this week, and next week we'll finish with 23 to 31 at the end. So looking at 17 to 22, after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Though I had no charge to uh, bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Lord, we, as always, need your help in rightly uh, understanding these words. As they were written, as they were intended in the culture in which they're written by the human author that was your instrument, who the audience is, we need to understand it in its right context, O Lord. But the telic, the purpose of, of these words, that you've deemed them important enough that they would be your inspired word to us, the eternal word, the authoritative word, has our attention because you are our God. So help us now, Lord, to mine all that we can 
As we look into these final matters of the apostle in this historical book anyway, and help us learn what you would have us learn from his life and from the things that we see and the things that are said rightly understood. We need your help with that because we desire to honor you here in this house this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Paul has, as I mentioned, literally since he wrote the letter to the Romans in 56 AD, this is 60 AD, you'll recall, they left in August of 59 AD. So since he wrote Romans, he was already talking about coming to visit. This has been, I mean, um, we might use the term obsession in our DNA. I mean, he's singularly focused. This is an obsessive man in our vernacular. So uh, since then and since chapter 19 and 21, when he mentioned it there, as I mentioned to you as well. So but what he couldn't have possibly known, and we get that as we've looked through this, this journey, is two things. First of all, the length of time it would take and the complexities that he would encounter. The threats on his life, the imprisonments, the rejections, that being found, well, not really guilty, actually being found innocent by the Roman government. They didn't really know what to do to it with him. But you'll recall, it was Festus, the second governor he talked to, that said, well, would you like us to send you back to Jerusalem then to stand before the council? Now, that's what we would call, borrowing from our vernacular again, a cop-out. He didn't know what to do with it because for him, you remember, that was a, this is a theological issue of, of which he knows very little to nothing, probably nothing. And so there's no offense according to Roman jurisprudence by which to put him to death. But it's sure of a certainty that the Jews want him dead. They want him silenced. Remind you of someone? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same as our Lord. So his only escape then at that point was to appeal to Caesar. He used his, and this is wisdom, so there's nothing wrong with using wisdom so that you can continue to have a pulse to stand and breathe the truth. That's what he did. He defended the truth against a barrage, an incessant, unrelenting barrage of lies. And he stands against that with his face set like flint against it. And he knows he's going to get to Rome, so he just continues to speak the truth. And he's doing it again here. This is his uh, sixth, uh, his final of six defenses, hence the title, his final defense that he's making in Rome. And we'll finish it up, as I said, next week. So it just reminded me in terms of the practicality of things and how I like to say, you know, ask myself the so what of this for my self and for my brothers and sisters, why is it often painful? Why are we often surprised at the pain God has to bring in our lives? You see, I don't just wait till the end to give you three points of application. We're going to do that all the way through, yeah? You good with that? I hope so. Because I want it to be practical all the way through. Because I was thinking about that. I thought, why not just give him the express clipper ship and calm seas to zip over to Italy and on a nice sunny day. He's representing you. And we think that way, don't we? I was reminded of myself. Why the circuitous route? 
Why does it take so long to get to a destination that you're convinced of? Why does it take so long? Why does it have to include pain and suffering? We ask ourselves that. It's a difficult question to ask because we know we're asking it against the sovereign over all exigencies in our lives that seem to do us harm. What makes a Paul, Paul? He's such a rock in his faith. He's, he doesn't waver. He doesn't compromise. He always is speaking the truth. And he doesn't jettison his love of other people. I'm going to stick to the truth. You guys are on your own. No, you remember how much he cared about other people. It's for the love of people that he went on the 10,000 miles worth of journeys that he's been on. He loves these people, especially his fellow Jews. So the love's there and the faith is there. Immovable, uncompromised. It should get our attention. I think it does. But we struggle with the question, the age-old question of theodicy. Why does, why does this have to, why does my journey have to include, I mean, the, 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 let's, let's set aside how long it takes. Let's just focus on the pain that has come, the struggles, the sufferings. Does God lack the power or does he lack the goodness? Asked Rabbi Kushner. And he settled on God's good, so he must just be saying, what are you going to do? <laughs> and we know better than that, don't we? He's omnipotent. He's almighty God. All wise, all knowing, all good. So what do we do with that? What do we do that especially as we are looking at the Apostle Paul? And I wait for him to question things and it just doesn't come or him to struggle. And I want some of that. Would that we would possess the confidence and the boldness that the Apostle has shown all the way along in this journey. He defines what it means to embrace the grace-based uh, human tenacity, doesn't he? I mean, he's tenacious. If you're not familiar with that word, it means to just grip tight and not let go. That's tenacity. That's tenacity. It's like, what does it take to get there? So clearly we're not called to the same calling that the apostle was, not even close. This is a couple thousand years later. It's in modern society. But do you understand that we are nevertheless at war? Are you at war? Are you? It's the same war he was conscripted into. It would be Arminian of me to say that we volunteered. I hope you get that. No, we were volunteered by sovereign calling. That's right. We're just fighting different battles, same war. And it's also interesting to think that the war's already been what? Won. Isn't that interesting? So why all of this? Why all of this? And I, I, I'm like my, my brother here in the front row. I, I love words. And, I, and so I'm always thinking of words that might be helpful to help us understand. And so and there's no alliteration. I didn't want you to be distracted with that this time. So I want to give you what I think are five qualities of a soldier of Jesus Christ. 
And those of you who are traditionally used to this coming at the end, <laughs> as a carpenter is saying, we've only just begun. I'm putting this on the front end for a reason. So I want us to think about for a moment what it characterizes a soldier because we're all in this war. And guess what? How many of us in this war for the past 2,000 years die? All of us. We're all going to die. So we want to get to the hope. We want to get to the things that we're here to commemorate in communion. So here's some words for you that came to mind as I looked at the Apostle Paul and I thought what it absolutely takes for someone to be a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ in this war that we're all conscripted into, first is boldness. And I put the definitions in there, just Wikipedia definitions, just so that you could unpack it a little bit to see how this applies spiritually, emotionally, physically, all the rest of it. We have to have boldness, a willingness to take risks. You have to be willing to take a risk innovatively, to think outside the box, yeah? to be bold and take steps. We don't usually, that's not how we do things. Step out of that social club and into the church of Jesus Christ and start thinking outside of that box. Paul handles things as they come and he does so, number two, with bravery. I love that word. I could have used the word courageous. We usually say courageous, same thing, but bravery. Bravery makes me think of a soldier, doesn't it? A, a, a wartime soldier. Bravery, the quality or state of having or showing mental or moral strength to face danger, fear, or difficulty. It's interesting, while we were away in Wisconsin, the things that you learn, I'm sharing bits and pizzas as we've gotten together Wednesday night, you know, and since we've been back. And um, my, I have two uncles that served uh, in combat, in World War II. They were much older than my dad. There was a big gap there. They were my dad and my Aunt Bev, who's still the last one living right now, was who was at the service, were born in the thirties, and his older brothers were born in nineteen twelve, fourteen, eighteen, and twenty. So there's a huge gap there, like I don't know, wherever that math is. So they went to World War II, and um I knew that my uncle uh Russ had been in, uh, injured badly, severely. And I knew that he had earned the Purple Heart. And was, uh, he, but I had to find that information out as I was doing a research of our family because he never wanted to talk about it, ever. It was never a topic he would talk about. When we were kids and we'd say, Uncle Russ, why do you limp? Because he had his leg nearly blown off. He'd say something like, well, I was walking along the street and there was this dog driving a beer truck. It's like, well, okay, I'm not going to get the truth. Or am I? So he just didn't want, he didn't want to talk about it. Well, I found out after the service from Aunt Bev that he didn't just earn the Purple Heart. He earned the Bronze Star. See, it turned out that he was in France when the Germans were firing what she didn't know what it was. She finally got Uncle Russ to talk about it. She said on the phone he would talk about it with her because he didn't have to face her in person, if you can understand and appreciate that. And he said that they were firing on him. Uh, he was in a foxhole. There was eight of them. 
and the Germans were firing at a, at a very popular piece of weaponry back in World War II called the German 88s. Uh, 88 uh, millimeter ordinances. Um, three, 3.45 inches, these rounds were coming in. It's the kind, it, it was used very versatile and very lethal. They used it against tanks. They were, it was anti-aircraft. The kind, this was like the big cannon-looking thing. And they were just blitzing them with these 88s. So he said they were, they were pummeling us with the, with, the, with the 88s. And he said, um, and she didn't know if, it, if they lobbed a grenade or if it was one of those 88s that came into the foxhole, but it blew them apart. Four of them were immediately killed and four were injured. But you have to, there's a criteria for the Bronze Star because that's actually one step higher than a Purple Heart. It's given to men like, um, what's his name from Tennessee? Bobby York. Yeah, Sergeant York, if you're familiar with his story. You have to show heroism or bravery. So there's a, a whole story that came behind this thing. He must have saved some men, even though he had his leg nearly blown off. They took him into a hospital. They said, we were going to amputate, have to amputate the leg. And he said, if you're going to amputate, amputate right here. And I was impressed. I'd never known that. At my age, I never knew that my whole life about my Uncle Ross. But to me, that's bravery. We have to have that kind of fortitude. We have to have that kind of tenacity on a spiritual level because we are in the same war the Apostle Paul was. It's not, it's not easier here. It's just different, isn't it? Our callings are different. The battles are different, but the war is the same. It's going to require boldness, stepping up, stepping out, tenaciously hanging on to our faith like a banner, Jehovah Nisi flying the Lord is our banner. It's going to take bravery. And three, it's going to take strength. That's the capacity of an object or substance to withstand grace, force, or pressure. We were talking with the men's group with Christian because Christian works, Christian Lysak works with um, uh, concrete. We're talking about the importance of his role in inspecting the concrete. Every load that comes in, he has to expect it. They do that by measuring the slump and all these different kinds of things. They do the same thing with asphalt. Asphalt has to have a certain temperature or they reject the load. You've got to take it back. So these things have to be in a certain strength in order to stand up. As it says here, under great force or pressure. Do you see the analogy? You know, the, the, the fact of the stories that I've been sharing just from my own journal, you have your own journal with the things that you've been going through with the whole, you know, 6,000 cubic yards of dirt hauled in all day long. My neighbor treating me not so very kindly about it as though this is somehow my problem. Just that whole thing. Uh, well, I was sharing the story the, yesterday that um, Barbara, when I was in the study, one day, I think Friday, said, um, hey, that little white-faced calf is outside your window looking up at you. I think he wants to talk to you. And I thought, oh, that's cute. I like little white face. You know, I, I come from four generations of farmers, so, you know, my dad had a pet calf. Same was Cherry. So uh, I look outside. No, it wasn't just a little calf. 
There were eight large bovine land animals, humongous cows, and they were ripping apart my little trees that through this drought, mind you, if you're in Mount Juliet and you got in your south of Lebanon Road and you got rain, you're like, what drought? Up here, we didn't get any. For like five weeks, we got none. And so I'm out there with a garden hose the past four weeks trying to keep these things from dying. Some of those trees have special meaning. When we lost our dogs nine or ten years ago, one precious saint in this church was brokenhearted for us, and she bought a dogwood tree that we could plant right by the garage. Well, I was, I've been watering that and watering that. I looked out my office window just in time to see the most massive cow you've ever seen. Mind you, their teeth are grinders because they grind all the time. That's how they eat. They are chewing all the time. So they're flat. So they're not good at pruning. So he's grabbing a hold of this, this little dogwood and I'm standing there horrified while it's ripping the limbs off of that dogwood. And, you know, it's, we say, we talk about these things with a smile, but these things are bringing a battle to us. These kinds of things, and you have your own stories too, they bring nevertheless a challenge to us. What are you doing with your heart? Are you minding your heart? We talk about that a lot. Got to be able to be strong, but not strong in my own strength. Why? I'm going to go out there and tell him such and so and so, whatever. No, that's not what, what God has called us to in Christ. He's called us to responding in a different way, and we talk about that in the first hour. Fourth, in this war, we need stamina. That's the ability to sustain prolonged physical or mental, and you can add spiritual effort. You can't. You can't give up. Don't quit. What did Jesus say? He who perseveres, what? To the does their best at least to make it to the third quarter, to the end will be saved. He who perseveres to the end. Because who is it that's causing you to persevere? It's the Lord who bought you. Bless you. We have to have stamina. I love these words. Boldness, bravery, strength, stamina, and finally resilience. The capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. I want the turnaround time to be fast. If you haven't learned that yet in your marriage, you better get to it. <laughs> There's a reason it says don't let the sun go down on what? Your anger. There's a reason that I needed to apply four A's to my heart. Once it's an annoyance, deal with it so it doesn't become an aggravation. So the aggravation doesn't ferment into animosity and the animosity turn into sinful anger to your doing the equivalent, the tantamount to murder in your heart, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. I want resilience. I want to be able to bounce back when these things come. And it's so obvious that God is letting because Satan is on the Lord's tether and the Lord's allowing these things to happen. And there's other things too, but I'm not going to go further in my list. But there's more things that are constantly going on. These are some of our battles. And some are worse, right? Health issues, fights with family members, the list goes on. That's our calling. So we imitate the apostle really by degrees in terms of, of these qualities according to 
and corresponding to our particular call, don't we? So here we have in verse 17, let's get into the text. Paul assembles the Jewish leadership in Rome to make his final defense. Verse 17. After three days, he called together local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Stop there for a moment. I've done nothing against our people. Um, You could look at Romans 9, verse 1 to 5, if you want to remember how much Paul loved his fellow Jews, almost willing to compromise or give over his own salvation for the sake of those that he loved. He loved them. That didn't change when he became a Christian. Think about why that didn't change. And you'll be on to something that heads us toward the end. In our conclusion, we remember the threefold accusation that is alliterated, right? The threefold accusation, we remind ourselves of what their accusations of him that go back to uh, chapter 24. It's sedition, sectarianism and sacrilege. Sedition is somebody who who causes a riot. Uh, Sectarianism, they're talking about. This is just a sect of Judaism, this Christianity. That's all it is. And he's whipping up this sect, which is against the law because Judaism is acceptable by the Roman government. This is something different. That's what the Jews were trying to say. No, this, this, is, this is some kind of, and the, and the Romans were saying, no, this is just a sect of Judaism. And that way they could just kind of avoid doing anything. The sacrilege, of course, was bringing, uh, they accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple. You remember that? You remember where Tertullus, remember him? Tertullus was the sort of hired gun of the Jewish council. They brought him down by Governor Felix to state their case against Paul. And here's what he said in 24, 5, and 6. For we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews, that's sedition, throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's sectarianism. And he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Verse 18 in our text. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty. Yeah, they looked carefully at this case. Two governors and a king and the council. The council just went back, went home. (laughs) They never came back. It's like, where are my accusers? He said to Festus, remember the second governor? Where are they? They're not here. Well, remember, Felix had him in prison for two years. So this is two years later. Like, where are they? So nothing there. So here he is being examined. One governor, the next governor, and then a king, who, by the way, comes from the Jewish family, the Herod family. He thought he could figure it out, and even he couldn't. Boy, would have helped him if he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar. Cop out. Send him. And now here he is. Because here's why. Verse 18, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. Plain and simple. So no matter who he stood before, whether it was Felix, Festus, Agrippa, the council, it doesn't matter where, Jerusalem, Caesarea, and now Rome, doesn't make any difference. Why? Because he stands on the truth. That's what we want to take home now with us. We've had that with us all through the book of Acts, all through the three missionary journeys, and now off in this journey to Rome. The truth, the truth, the truth. Nothing but the truth. I'm glad 
That's what we stand on in our country today. Nothing but the truth. Boy, it got quiet in here. Verse 19, But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation, I want you fellow Jews to know, he could say, I, br- I never in all of these trials brought a charge against. He was always defending the truth. He never attacked. He never countersued. He never went on the offensive, which would be the tendency in the flesh for us, wouldn't it? Can we agree? I mean, turnabout is fair play, right? When you're a kid, it's like somebody accuses you of something. Yeah, well, you, right? That's how we operate typically. But he wouldn't do that. He loved the Jews, and he knew he was standing on the truth. So his appeal to Caesar was not to accuse the Jewish people. People, by the way, remember when he said, this is, these are people that I belong to. These, these are people, these are my people. Verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you. And here is the centerpiece of the text. Here's the centerpiece of Paul's entire argument. Here's the centerpiece, if you continue the metaphor, that he takes along with every argument and every table that he finds when he stands before whomever in whatever authority capacity and he sets down as a centerpiece. Here's what I'm accused of. It's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. That's it. The hope of Israel. What's that? I'm wearing these chains because of the hope of Israel. Why are you wearing chains if it's the hope of Israel? I mean, what do they have against you being a proponent for the things that they hope for? Good question, if they would ask it. So we need to understand this, that Paul neither depreciates or deprecates Judaism. Very important point. He never does that. He never depreciates. He never speaks against it at all. He never speaks against it. He doesn't slanders it. He actually commends and completes it. That's the key. And you remember when he did that in his defenses. No, I'm not of the, some other sect of the Nazarenes or whatever. I'm actually a Jew. I am a, there isn't a more Jewish man than me as far as being legit. Read what he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3, right? Circumcised the eighth day, born Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was zealous for the law. He persecuted the church. What else do you need on my list here? So he doesn't teach the annulment of Judaism. He doesn't want that... He's not saying that they're wrong and Christianity's right. He embraces and teaches the fulfillment of Judaism. That's Paul. Christianity is the completion, not the elimination of Judaism. It's the completion of it. And he loves them. You can imagine him coming out of the starting blocks in Jerusalem or even out of Damascus thinking, I can't wait to tell my brothers and sisters about The Messiah is here. Boy, did he have a lot to learn, right? Uh, The hope of Israel. 
That's why I'm on trial. I brought them the hope of Israel. What's that? It's the promise of the Messiah and of the resurrection of his people. He made that clear. He made it clear to every authoritative body he stood before, whether Jew or Gentile, Romans or Sanhedrin. He said in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, Paul cried out, this is before the council, Paul cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. That's what I'm on trial about. They're offended by the Messiah who came. And so they're rejecting out of hand the promise of a resurrected life. Sure, the Sadducees reject anything outside of the Torah, the five books. They reject anything supernatural. They reject all the historical books, the prophets, all the rest. So they don't count. The Pharisees, of course, embraced the idea of resurrection, and so they fought. Why didn't the Pharisees stick up for him? Because it isn't just the resurrection. If Paul was going around and saying, hey, guess what? We're going to be resurrected with no mention of Jesus Christ. As always, in every case, wherein lies the rub? Who is the issue? I just gave it away by saying who. It's Christ. It will be, it is now, and it always will be His name, you bringing it up to people that you know and love. Everybody, nobody, listen, everybody from the, from the Hollywood celebrities to sports stars, we're heading into football season, now we get to Listen to all these people, basketball, baseball, it doesn't matter. I'd like to thank my God. Well, I'd like to know who your God is. Say his name. And we talked about that. We've covered all this ground over this long period of time we've been in this book. It's the promise of the Messiah and the expectation of a resurrected life. That's why he's on trial. That's what he's saying. He's, he, be mindful of, actually I was looking and at different places throughout the scriptures from the oldest to the New Testament, you see the resurrection. One of the oldest books, and it's argued that some believe the oldest book of the Bible is the book of Job, right? Yeah. What did he say? In 1925 to 27, for I know that what? My Redeemer lives. He's alive. How can they hate something that's part of their scriptures? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, so you don't have to worry about what about people that are incinerated or blown apart or he's not some glorified parts collector. He can make things alive with a word, actually with a thought that becomes a word. He thinks things and he speaks them into existence. That's what God does. He doesn't need to scrounge around for body parts. 
or ashes or anything like that. That's crazy. He says, after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me what I should say so. (laughs) Wow. Mine does too, Job. That is definitely a faint-worthy concept. It should send us all reeling back a little bit. So you have Job, one of the oldest, if not the oldest book of the Bible. We can tell by the cultural things that are discussed in the book of Job and so on. It's Abrahamic, at least, way back, early Genesis era in terms of the cultural things that are disclosed there. Daniel, now we have a major prophet. Daniel 12, verse 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We're all going to be resurrected to a judgment. The question is, where will we stand? On the right or on the left? Important question, yeah? Or how about Psalm 16? So we heard it, 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, David writes, and my whole being rejoices. Why? My flesh also dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's eternity. Now we go to the New Testament. Jesus corrects the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 22, 31 to 33. And as for the resurrection of the dead, here it is. He clarifies. He makes it clear whether you're a Sadducee, a Pharisee, or whoever you are. Have you not read? And by the way, that was, that was a slam to them because they're supposed to know their scriptures forward and backward. Did you miss this part? (laughs) Have you not read what was said to you by God? Quote, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. End quote. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, yeah. Yeah. But he's saying something that they should have been embracing all along. This is not new news to them. And so that's what Paul is saying. What they're holding me accountable for is simply for declaring, I've never spoken against Israel, the Jews, or Moses, or the law. I've never never defiled the temple, never spoken against the temple. They scrounged around to try to blame Stephen with, remember? Remember? And it caused him his life. I've never done that. Chapter 24, verse 14 to 16 in Acts. This is when he stood before Felix. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which is Christianity, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, 
Listen, believing everything. He doesn't dismiss any of it. Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God. I haven't lost my hope. What happened to you all? Which these men themselves accept. At least that's what they say. Why am I on trial for this? Which these men accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, just like Daniel said. It's coming. I want you guys on the right side of the judgment seat of God because I love you. And so I will stand on that truth even if you kill me for saying it. Tenacity. Unwavering. Stamina. From one trial to the next, bounces back. Boldness. Bravery. Or in chapter 26 then. That was 24, 26 again. Another trial, another day, another trial. This was before King Agrippa. Chapter 26, 6 to 8. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. It's the hope of the promise of the coming Messiah and the resurrection. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain. Another reminder. This is something that you are all supposed to be looking forward to. And as they earnestly worship night and day. What are they worshiping, I wonder, he could be thinking. It should be this. Why aren't they rejoicing with me? And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. So will you and I be. Just have that single full message, by the way. It just occurs to me. Just say I'm representing the hope that's been the hope for millennia. The hope of God's promise to bring a Savior and to guarantee our resurrection. And, and then tell them how that's brought about through Jesus Christ. And watch what happens. It's something to rejoice in. Yeah, I mean, it's something to jump up in the air and cry out. To finish that verse, verse 8 in 26. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It's all over the scripture. He knew that. And of course, you have to bring up Ezekiel 37 and the dry bones, don't you? I mean, this, it, don't you love that section? Let's just look at 11 to 14. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We're cut off from life, right? Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Yes, say it again and again. Now we know why. So it's clear that they're rejecting not a concept. They're rejecting him. Verse 14, And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. You're alive. 
and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Does it get any stronger than that? It deserves an amen, doesn't it? Yeah. Praise the Lord. You can take a pile of dead bones that's cut off from any source of life. Yes. He will do it. So Paul's a prisoner, not because he abandoned Judaism, because he's proclaiming the completion, the fulfillment of Judaism, the coming of the Messiah, the, the promise. The real deserters of Judaism are the deniers then, right? The real Those that are deserting Judaism are the ones who deny the resurrection and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Verse 21, And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you. I want you to think about this. this uh, I spent a little bit of time thinking about this verse. Well, watch what they say. And think about where we've been and, and what they're saying here. So they said to him, this is the Jewish leaders then that he gathered together in Rome. We've received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. We've received no letters, makes sense, because you remember they left late in the year so that we can be assured that there's no other ship that's coming, right, to bring letters. Well, that, that makes sense. Paul left on the Adraminium from Caesarea in August, and by the time they ended up in Crete, it was late fall, probably... November, because it was after the uh, celebration of the atonement, you remember. So besides, it's been over two years since Paul stood before Tertullus and Felix. Remember, he in prison. It's been well over two years. So it's, he's probably been largely forgotten because they probably were assuming he's either dead or in jail, Right? So we haven't received any letters. So so far, so good. We'll, 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 we'll buy that as plausible, won't we? So there was this decree of Claudius, however. You remember Claudius' decree that the prophet Agabus was talking about in Acts when he expelled all the Jews? Well, Claudius was out of office in 54. and 54, he put... Nero in his place. So it's thought that that decree went out in 54 AD. So if, and you remember the circumstances, right? It was because of the, the, the Roman uh, historian Suetonius reports that it's because there were constant, he says continual or constant uh, uh, disturbances is the word he used. Disturbances that would blow over over the issue of someone named Crestus. You remember that? Well, and I, and I looked at a lot of different opinions on this, and the ones that you lean toward are the ones who say, no, this was clearly, this was clearly Christ. This was clearly a reference to Christ. Well, if in 54 AD, he's getting there in 60 AD, so that six years ago you were fussing about Crestus, that means that that Roman church probably started quite a ways back. You see? Plus, he had written to Rome. So how could they not know anything about Paul. 
It's starting to press credulity with me at this point. I'm like, huh, let's, let's, let's go a little further and see where, this, see where this goes. So verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken of or spoken against. Aha! Uh-huh. Oh, so you do know some things. And what kinds of things are those? You do know about this, and you've already made a judgment because you're referring to it as a what? A sect. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? So this sect, so they claim to not know anything about the Apostle Paul. If the church has been there for like, six years or, or whatever, fussing over Crestus and it's blown up into things. They didn't know about any of this. And clearly the, the expulsion with the edict is over with because the Jews that he's talking to are there in Rome. So Nero probably didn't enforce it. We don't know. But there he's talking to Jews who claim that they don't know anything about Paul. How could you not know about the major proponent of Christianity, the guy who was singularly used by the Lord to spread it around in three missionary journeys throughout the civilized world of their day? So what's up here? And they're calling it a sect. Are they putting it in a certain category? Mm-hmm. Are they, do you think they're for Christianity? Or, okay, see, that's the thing. Oh, for regard to this sect, whoop. Your opinion's showing. We know that everywhere this is spoken against. Does the concept controlling the narrative come to mind? Oh, everybody's against this. It's nothing but a sect. That's all this is. Paul, Schmall, whatever. Who are you again? Now I'm really incredulous at this point. I'm like, okay. We've been through quite a journey the three and a half years we've been going through Acts. You haven't heard of the apostle. We don't have any letters. What, did he cause any, some trouble or something? <laughs> wow. The vast majority, everywhere they're against it. No mention of any proponents of it. Huh. That's funny. Because there's probably, can we say at least hundreds of converts? Maybe more? Thousands, maybe. There were a lot. Remember when Peter, at the very beginning, there was 3,000 saved and then 5,000? I mean, there's thousands of Christians. Everywhere it's spoken against? Hard-pressed to buy that. But they're opening to hear from Paul. Now that is the next thing that got my attention. Why? Why do they want to hear his testimony? Why would you want, if you already prejudge somebody in your mind, why would you want him on the stand? We want to hear you. Yep. Keep spooling out that rope, buddy. Soon you'll have enough to hang yourself. I'm so glad this doesn't take place in our day. 
Their minds are already made up. And so you might think, well, why would Luke report this? Listen, Luke is duty-bound to report the truthfulness of what was said. He's not, he's not called to editorialize. He's not, that would be inappropriate, wouldn't it? Well, here's what they said, but... He's reporting what he heard. Here's what they said. Leaving the rest to the Lord. So what are they really hoping for from Paul? You think it's a sincere desire to clarify the truth? I don't know that I'm ready to be that naive. Not having spent three and a half years of my life looking at this journey we've been on with Peter and John and now Paul. And then I have to pick up something that McLaren said. So McLaren, you remember, is in the 1800s. Listen to what McLaren says here. The request for full exposition of a prisoner's belief has often been but a trap to ensure his martyrdom, end quote. We want you to come in and we want you on trial. No, because we want to hear your side of it. Oh, and the dish ran off with the spoon. My goodness. This is just never... This continues to this day. Even though that we suspect something, let me just hasten to say, whether it's a federal court or a municipal court even, whatever that is, we are called to present the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are called to represent the truth. First Peter three fifteen to sixteen. You're very familiar with it. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's Paul. He's not. We don't have anything in the record that shows us that he's going, hey, wait a second, I know what you guys are up to. Would he have reason to think that way? To think that there's maybe something deleterious with their motives? Yeah, plenty of reason. Look what he's been through. Look what he's seen. Look at the lies. He's been under an avalanche of lies, buried in lies, and shoveling himself out with his little shovel called the truth. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have any animus toward his accusers. He doesn't have any animus toward the courts. He simply understands the sovereignty of God who has put him there to speak the truth about Christ. That's it. No aggravation, no animosity. No, I, I think, wait a minute, because see, that would be sick guessing somebody's motives and we've talked about how wrong that is around here. Right? So we stand for the truth which Paul made abundantly clear throughout the hope of Israel. That's the reason I'm in chains. That's why he says, I am a prisoner of whom? The Roman government? Jesus Christ. 
I carry these chains with me from town to town. The chains are the burdens that he carried. I carry those burdens. In Christ we are killed all day long, the scripture says. For his sake we walk, we represent, though in chains in that sense. If that's what he calls us to. We don't fight the chains. He's making a defense. Don't get me wrong. You just say, oh. Remember, we're not fatalists. Oh, what can I do? No. We represent the truth without equivocation, without compromise. We stand for the truth. He had a destination, Paul. And he was going to get there. He was going to get there with the gospel. That's it. The truth of the gospel, he was ready to proclaim. He had a destination, and his eyes were set and fixed on that destination. The same thing has to be for us. I mentioned that in the memorial service we're wrapping up this morning. I'm going to have a little bit more to say as we open up for communion because this so wonderfully fits into what we celebrate today. But I mentioned that it occurred to me while I was preparing for my mother's memorial service last week. I thought, well, I, I, I had asked her. I, I said, well, how can you be so calm and resolute facing death? She's nearly blind. She's whittled down to 78 pounds. She has to be cared for by people. And yet her spirit is like sunflowers. Glorious. Sunshining day. And when I asked her, I said, how do you keep this calm composure, this pleasant spirit that you seem to have? I rebuked her for it, by the way. I said, you're setting the bar too high for the rest of us who are much younger than you who would like to be able to complain a little bit and feel justified in doing it. She laughed. She said, I've lived a long life. I'm ready to go to heaven. It so reminded me what providentially the Lord had me preaching these months with the Apostle Paul. And I pictured my mother there on the bow of that ship as it's being battered. That's her body. Her body is withering away by the ravages of fallenness, but her eyes, not her physical eyes, she was nearly blind. She only had one eye left, and it was almost gone, fixed on heaven. And she held on tenaciously. I've lived a long life. I'm ready to be in heaven. She held on to this unwavering faith. It was exemplary So my mother wasn't gripped in abject fear. Why? Because death is no longer for the Christian a dark chasm that they don't understand. They don't know what's going to happen, so they're terrified. I I, I grieve when Christians are like that when they're getting close to death. Are you kidding? Do you know? And it's a privilege to be able to... This is what you have as an expectation. Have you read Revelation? Do you know... What's going to open up? 
Do you know what you're about to see? Something I long to see. And I don't need my physical eyes to see it. To see Him. Why should a Christian be afraid of something they prefer? Kind of the schizophrenia of us, isn't it, at times? It doesn't make sense. And I'm so blessed that God, by faith and grace, allowed us to see that. Perfect? No. Ask my Aunt Mary. She wasn't perfect all the time. But who could blame her? Why why would a Christian ever fear what they prefer? What they hold to as the greatest hope, like the fathers, as Paul put it, had as an expectation. Why would you reject the means to go there and be there? Thomas Watson said that death for the Christian is just the funeral of all of his sorrows. He also said something else. I know it's, it's not always advised to read a quotation at a memorial. I couldn't resist reading Watson. Watson's just wonderful when it comes to death in his body of divinity, just wonderful treatments of it. If you're ever going to do a memorial service or a funeral, avail yourself. It just Here's one little tidbit on this principle of you shouldn't have fear or avoid or have angst over something you prefer, something that you said you're longing to get to. He said, is it not a blessed thing to see God, to love God, to lie forever in the bosom of divine love? Is it not a blessed thing to meet our godly relations in heaven? Why should the saints be afraid of their blessing? End quote. It's the insanity of this life we have here. The irrationality of it. We say we believe and we believe. Why would we fear? Paul didn't. Neither did my mother. But I'm going to finish with this, and we're going to get ready for communion. There's a couple more things I'm going to say as we start communion. But I gotta, I've got to include St. Augustine. I, I, I included him because not only is this such a wonderful quotation as well on this topic, but because uh, there's a lot of Catholics in Wisconsin, and they venerate St. Augustine. I refer to him as St. Augustine. Here, listen to what he says. It is necessary to die, but nobody wants to. A hard necessity, that is, not to want something which cannot be avoided. If it could be managed, we would much rather not die. We want to reach the kingdom of God, but we don't want to travel by way of death. And yet, my favorite part, there stands necessity saying, This way, please. (laughs) Now listen to this, and we close. He asks this. He asks you and I this question. Do you hesitate, O man, to go this way? 
when this is the way that God came to you? Father, thank you for readying our hearts for this occasion to celebrate what the means of this pathway to glory is. It is the sacrifice of your own son, Jesus Christ. Not only his death and burial, but his resurrection, apart from which we would simply be miserable. You are alive. And because you are, so are we. Because we hold tightly to that rope. You and you alone are our anchor. The anchor of our soul. But the ship has been battered. The anchor holds though the sails are torn. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for readying our hearts so that we can be filled with gratitude as we commemorate that great sacrifice now. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.